Welcome to Dear World, a podcast and radio show hosted by OPAL, an organization committed to building collective power and AAPI feminist leadership in Ohio. Every episode will bring forth a different theme where AAPI and other BIPOC women and non-binary and trans folks from all over the U.S. will share their stories unfiltered and raw. We asked them if they had a chance to share their story with the world, what would they say? Many of you may be tuning in from what is now known as the state of Ohio. We want to acknowledge that we are on the traditional territory of hundreds of different indigenous tribes and nations, including the Erie, the Wyandotte, Mingo, Shawnee, Delaware, Miami, Huron, Ojibwe, Potawatomi, and Adwa. The Indigenous people are still here, and an acknowledgement is just the first step of repairing the broken relationships caused by genocide, broader oppression, and unrecognized sovereignty. If you want to find out more about the traditional territory where you are, you can visit native-land.ca. I'm your co-host, Balbreet Gore. My pronouns are she, her, and they, and I'm a Punjabi Sikh woman who loves to try new things. I'm your co-host, Zoe Byron. My pronouns are she and they. I'm a queer East Asian person organizing in Cleveland and nationally. I'm a Pisces and I enjoy doing yoga most days. I'm excited that you're tuning into our fourth episode. Yeah, I think that I feel like what you just said is so important. Like if you, the pain of not being able to ex, like express your your beauty like mm-hmm. <laughs> like is is uh it's like a harm that like nobody else will register except you and so it's like really i feel like it's really easy for people to dismiss that beauty standards and exploring how beauty standards such as facial features weight skin color hair and more come from anti-blackness and are defined by white supremacy. We tackle some big questions like, what is celebrated in the media? What is considered beautiful? Does everything need to be beautiful? What does decolonizing beauty look like when we analyze beauty through cultural background, gender, or class? We'll be speaking with Alap Bumaraju, who is a trans femme, non-binary, queer, Indian-American immigrant who takes their pills. They're desperate to finish a PhD in sociology at the University of Cincinnati. And their current pressing questions include, what does political victory mean in the aftermath of slavery? What's the best way to avoid your supervisor without them realizing? What happened to that $2,000 check? And why do I gender my cat? Jen, with our first question, you know, what was the first instance you remember of encountering beauty or beauty standards? I was thinking about this. I, it's hard to remember, you know, like, I don't know if you all experienced this sort of like, there's like all these traumatic events that have happened in my past. And so like, You like, if you like remember a good one, you might cross over like a trauma one. So it's like better to just not (laughs) go there, you know? But I, um, I, the thing that really like was like the first where I was like, I feel like this is like what 
like really kind of clued me in to that to this like feeling state of like when you think something's beautiful was like we, my, so my family had immigrated from India to Canada and I was born in Canada and then we uh, my dad got a job at a steel plant outside of Chicago and so he was working there for a couple of years and then they were able to buy a house the first house right and it had like this above ground pool in the backyard. And I think the previous owners had just put it in, but there was no grass. It was just all dirt. And so there was this one weekend where they bought a bunch of sod, which sod is like this, like, it's like, if you don't want to like put seeds in the ground and like wait for things to grow, wait for grass to grow, you can just like import like a, like the grass and the dirt, like topsoil layer. It comes in this clump, like squares, and you just like place it like into the yard. And like, you know, it becomes like this beautiful, full, like lush lawn. And I think that was like, I was just like so, excited and I thought it was so pretty and it was like we're gonna have like this yard you know and and we had to like cut them to like fit the corners and everything and it, it was very like satisfying to cut the you know like so I felt like that was with this one this like it's like I know what beautiful grass is supposed to look like because of this like uh, like product that we were able to like afford and put on the ground and yeah so that was like the one that because like initially I was like oh it probably has to do with like my me and but I really felt like it was the like that was like the the memory that really struck me I guess I was like five I appreciate your take on that because I definitely was thinking about it in like a personal way like thinking about that question in a personal way um but yeah I, I think it's really interesting because I feel like grass is a very like North American, like US and Canada thing too. So I think that's, yeah, just an interesting like, oh, we're getting closer to the American dream by having grass or like getting closer to whatever, <laughs> like white people dream um, by doing this. It's, it's like what Alop said, like we made it. it it was a symbol of we have this thing, this commodity, and it looks beautiful. Of encountering beauty was also when I, like from a physical level, um, that are not like human, was when I came to America and I remember we landed, um, my mom and I had landed in JFK airport uh, in New York and my dad was living here and his, his, his friend and I, uh, his friend and my dad came uh, to pick us up and it was nighttime. And I remember going past this like parking lot garage, a parking garage that was so huge and it was like full of lights. And I remember saying to my uncle, I was like, it looks like it's Diwali right now because there's so many lights and I love the lights. 
And I remember thinking those lights were so beautiful because they were so bright and so like awe-inspiring to like three-year-old me that like I guess the earliest moment of me being just struck by something that was so awesome and I remember thinking like wow this is beautiful was were lights on a <laughs> parking garage in New York City because <laughs> I had never seen that before um, in my three years of living in India um, before that like this interesting take on like when we were first struck by beauty in terms of our environment like something as ordinary as soil and grass and like lights really says a lot about you know what we have conflated beauty to be as just a human thing um, and kind of removed it from us being able to experience our spaces as beautiful as our physical environment as um, inspiration for beauty as well I remember really struggling to spell the word be- beautiful, like in when you had to learn how to spell it, because it was like, there's so many like letters that don't make sense in it. Yeah, and that makes me think like in, in my like native tongue, um, beautiful is known as kubsurat, right? Um, Kub meaning like very well or very, very like good. And Sura can mean face, but if you expand that definition, it just means like form, (laughs) right? Um, And so, yeah, beautiful. The way that it was spelled was also difficult to me because I was like, why is there an A in here? <laughs> yeah, I I was like being a nerd and I looked up like the the like Oxford English Dictionary like etymology and stuff and it's like you know like these 13 14th century like like English words that are you know have romance or in Germanic like roots or whatever and mm. It's just like really like, it's just a really like white thing, (laughs) you know what I mean? It's like capital W, like, you know, uh, Anglo-Saxon, anyway, sorry. (laughs) Like it it really does, like I think thinking about it more deeply has really like made me think more about that piece. Alap, I know that you are studying sociology, you're like academically thinking about all these like complex theories and wondering about the way that like the world works. And so as you've sort of lived your life and your experiences, how has this idea and concept of beauty changed for you? Yeah, I'm sorry about being an academic. <laughs> like it's to some degree it's very much like it's it makes it easier to not be vulnerable, you know, like cuz because you can always like make like do all this like well objectively, you know, like and like distance yourself. But um I was thinking about how it's changed and 
I think like definitely I you know it's like it was it was obvious and it was not a, something that I would critique I think when I was in like grade school like I didn't really like have you know I wasn't like critical of it but I do feel like when I got into college and then you know like even like later on in high school um it like it was like oh well obviously you know the beauty is in the eye of the beholder thing right like that was like I feel like that I like got to that but I don't, you know, I think I have been like it's that leaves you in this weird place, right? Like that phrase really just like it becomes like very just relative. And I know that, you know, all of us have experienced this. It's it's not like a relative concept, right? Like people it's like very clear when people think things are beautiful and think things aren't, you know? Like it's and it's like lots of people think the same things are beautiful <laughs> and like right like and it's usually like you know like being blonde or something right like it's like these things so um I feel like that process of like changing over time is it's hard to like track but I do feel like I have like gotten to a better place or better understanding is there a particular like story or moment that comes to mind as like when you first started redefining what beauty means to you? I was, I was, I think it's, I don't know if you all have like heard about this product called Fair and Lovely. It's like a, um, it's a, oh, it's a product that, yeah, <laughs> Procter and Gamble which is like Cincinnati-based corporation, like makes and sells this product, makes like millions of dollars, <laughs> probably more than millions, right? Like who knows how much they make, but it's, you know, it's like a whitening cream that they market in India um, because obviously there's like a, you know, a market for that. <laughs> and um, I when I went to India, this was like, I was older, but I feel like it really hit then. Like, um, I went and I went with my partner who is white and she's a white woman. And like, I, we went and we were with my cousins, my, uh, they're like really young, like little babies. And they were really into, um, like Disney movies and stuff. And they were just like obsessed with her white skin, you know? And it's just like, it's really intense. It's like this intense, like, oh, wow. You like, y'all are like, really, you, you like have the self-hate right now. And it's like not being challenged in this space. Like there isn't, there isn't like the feminist, like I'm not there or something being like, <laughs> no, <laughs> like it's like very just like accepted. It's like yeah, your your life is gonna be worse because you're the darker sibling, and like you know, like this kind of just like acceptance thing. My family is they're they're all like very like committed to like being Brahmin, like sort of like think that they're like 
more have more purity and stuff so yeah it's like you know i feel like that was like a real kind of like really understanding like how this it's like a global thing it's not just like some like my the people at my high school are like are racist right you know it's like this really like complex network of like capitalism and everything that's super relatable one of my um like earliest memories um of beauty and like beauty standards um is like being in Taiwan with uh, my mom's side of the family. Um, I'm biracial, so I'm Taiwanese and white. My whole family would compliment how pretty I was, how long my eyelashes were, and I had never really thought about that, or like, you know, thought about maybe some colorism happening um, in those comments until thinking about this conversation um and I was like they they probably were doing that because I have more proximity to whiteness than than they do and they like that's what makes them think that I'm pretty it wasn't just like they're all beautiful too (laughs) but um yeah my being biracial and being closer to being white made them look at me differently and like everyone else in Taiwan too like people would stare at me and my brother who's also biracial just random people would tell us that we were attractive which is very strange too but um yeah I totally totally relate to that experience these experiences right like um Zoe you you were getting complimented (laughs) for you know fitting into this beauty standard that the people around you held and then a lot you were kind of experiencing the shadow side of that where people who didn't fit into that beauty standard were doing things to fit into it right um which for me really just speaks to this like universality like you were saying, like it's it's not just happening at our local high schools. It's happening everywhere, right? We're all impacted by this word beauty and what it imp- what it implies and what meaning we derive out of it. As I like sort of reflect on my relationship with this word beauty and whatever it has implied, because I kind of straddled two different cultures, right? I'm Punjabi, um, North Indian, right? And like, I, I don't even actually identify as Indian, but like, I'm Punjabi, but then I'm in America. And I remember very distinctly, I was very proud of the fact that I had long hair because all the all the girls in my culture like they were praised if they had long hair, like that was considered beautiful. When I would go to school, that long hair was also like fetishized in a way, right? And it was also like in one culture, my hair was praised. And then when I would get to school, like that same hairiness was like, why do you have long hair? 
and like why do you have hair on your arms i was telling tessa this during our prep for this call like my first sort of incident i remember of feeling like oh my god maybe i'm not normal was this boy in second grade in my lunch line looked at my arms and said you're a werewolf and like second grade me was like what's a werewolf <laughs> <laughs> like that word doesn't exist right in my <laughs> native tongue i had no idea of what a werewolf was but he pointed to my arms and like i remember grasping onto the meaning of his words and i was like he is making fun of me and even though i don't know why it still stung and i knew it had something to do with my hair at home i was like you know my hair was a good thing and then at school my hair was not a good thing and then when i decided to tie a turban and like stop like cutting my hair everything was topsy turvy again right where my long hair was beautiful but now that it's in a turban it's not <laughs> yeah it's like dangerous or something it's right dangerous <laughs> now, right like i have stopped like shaving and i have stopped like cutting my hair that was also seen as like what are you doing like you're not a girl anymore <laughs> and and it was just like wait what <laughs> i didn't know that my femininity was defined by my hair <laughs> or where my hair grows this idea of beauty has been ever changing um in terms of what people around me find beautiful and what they don't. And in every circle that I'm in, that idea of beauty is always linked to like do you belong with us or do you not? Yeah, I think that issue of like belong belonging is like really it is like a key cuz like I you know, my family like has really not accepted like it that the fact that I you know, and that I wear like different clothes than I used to. You know, it's really just like that. Like, they really cannot handle it. You know, I wore like a, I was wearing like a blouse with my mom, like at lunch, and she like lost her mind. <laughs> she was so mad, you know? And it was like, it was the same. It was like, not the same, but it was like, what are you doing? You know, like, what are you doing to us? type of thing in this case but like yeah it's really like these it's like these just like markers that like are like it's really like your decision right <laughs> like it's it has like like it, it as soon as it gets like it's like people see it and then it ends up getting connected to like this whole like giant apparatus of like meanings that like makes it really a problem you know, um, mm. yeah. I'm, yeah. I feel like I in our in our DNA somewhere, there's something that's like like people that don't look like us are a threat to us and are scary. And yeah, if if somebody doesn't look like us, then then we're not safe. So then, <laughs> I feel like that reaction is very like somewhere deep within us in our DNA. Not that it can't be changed or that it shouldn't be changed, but um, 
who or what has the power to determine what is beautiful and not beautiful in your culture or community? So that like question that you posed a lot of like, what, like, why are you doing this to us? Yeah. I like you said that and I immediately was like, that is a question that people have thrown at me also. Yeah. And you're like, I don't want to hurt you. You know, it's like, it's hard. It really like makes it, especially when you're in like a community that's already minoritized, you know, like when they tell you that, I think it's really painful because it's just like, like more painful somehow. Right. Cause you're like, wait, like I, you know, we're like, we're all we have, right? Like that. And then, you know, it's like, I don't want to be the oppressor here. But then it like, you know, it's very just like, wait, <laughs> you just, this is just gaslighting, right? Like, it's all that's happening. Um, yeah. Like, who defines who is us, right? Like, who has that power to determine? Or what has that power to determine what is beautiful and what is not? Yeah. Or what is yeah, harmful so, and what is not? <laughs> I Yeah, I feel like this is, this is like, this is where I'm like grateful for being a sociologist because I feel like it does actually, like they, they talk about this, right? Like there's like a sociology of beauty that is concerned with this particular question because like you know the what you can go one way and you'd be like oh it's just capitalism or whatever and it's just like this whole like just like kind of like it's capitalism (laughs) and then it's like all of like the diversity of our experiences is like rendered completely like meaningless right because like it's just like oh you're just like in the system whatever um but like real life is more complicated than that you know so um yeah i feel like i don't know i think it's like really contextual who has the power to just you know like in this interaction with like your family or like loved ones it's like you know they it's like that there's this power dynamic but then they're situated in like the thing where it's like you know the whole society is against you so then it's like makes sense why they're why people retrench and like want to hold on to like the they're like the most like conservative version of like what they remember um i don't know even that sounds kind of pathologizing so <laughs> It's really hard. <laughs> yeah, Tessa was saying that so upholding beauty standards seems to support capitalism, which is an interesting point, which makes sense because if capitalism is deriving value from our labor and therefore our bodies, then the value that we assign our bodies um aka like what is beautiful what is not um also like perpetuates this idea that we are only our bodies and our labor and what we create from our bodies is the only thing that is worth of any value 
and commercialized. Related to the product that you brought up earlier. Is it fair and lovely? Is that what it's called? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah, like, like there's so many different products that are for, like, obtaining some beauty standard, right? Whether that's just makeup or hair products or skin lightening products or whatever that um like if you're participating in that then that's that's upholding capitalism as well um by like buying those products consuming them um and like trying to reach that standard of beauty that society sets for us i was just gonna say that i think that it's like it's hard because it's like what doesn't support capitalism you know what i mean like it's like really actually hard to identify things that are able to really resist capitalism especially nowadays it's like things are so integrated that it's like you know i think because i think you can do things to yourself like you can do like aesthetic in they call it body work that's not like you're not getting paid for but it's like things you want to do for your right like you're like because that you should have agency and ability to do that without it becoming like this sort of like you're contributing to the oppression of like the proletariat um and i think that is possible um i feel like it's just like the like the you when you have to be you have to look a certain way to work at a place, right? Like, I feel like that's, like, a real thing. Um, yeah, this idea of, like, professionalism, well, at least in the U.S., and, and now increasingly through, um, like, the Global South as well, like, who is considered a professional, right? It's, like, the people with suits and the people with... Um, like clean shaved faces <laughs> um, and like there's um, there was actually like a an article that was saying that um, women in Japan are pushing back against rules that their employee employers are making that they have to be in high heels right um, or that they have to have a full face of makeup on um, in order to like look presentable in that case, it's like the employers are setting the standard of what is beautiful or what is acceptable in the workplace versus what is not. And that (laughs) idea has also stemmed from, like you said, like capitalism, um, these corporations deciding what is good in the workplace and what is not without taking in consideration the needs of the individual and there's a whole entire industry that supports all of this right yeah Mm -hmm. I mean I so I work I remember when I like I I was wearing you know like I I, I like was wearing high heels right and so that made me like 5'11 and so it's like tall you know like really tall and then I'm also like super loud kind of right and I'm always like bringing up stuff and like you know making points in meetings or whatever like so in this research world 
like one time I showed up at this place and my, you know, it's like both of the principal investigators on the grant, like looked me up and down, like did these like sort of like, and I had like this like sweater on that had like little, you know, like shoulder cutouts. And like my advisor later came and told me that it was like inappropriate what I was wearing. You know, and it's like, just like, like things like that, that, you know, I guess happen. But it's like, this is like a feminist space, right? Like this is, you're supposed to not experience things like this in these spaces. But like, there there are these very clear boundaries on like what you're supposed to be wearing. You know, like, uh, like what a non-binary person is supposed to look like, right? Like... Uh, that's in part that's why I shave my face now is because like I feel like I have to to like fit this bucket you know um it it strikes me again that like no space is immune these like standards right of what one should look like versus what one just is because <laughs> even in the sick community like I keep, I don't remove any hair. Um, and so what that means is like, I have hair on my face. And even in the sick community where we know that like cutting hair is not okay. And like, there is this like, ex- like um, bare minimum acceptance of like body hair, like integrated into our norms. I still had aunties coming up to me who also kept their hair and like wore turbans and they were like, yeah, why don't you just like bleach it? Or why don't you just, you know, it's okay. (laughs) You can just remove it. I'm like, you're literally going against our fundamental values. (laughs) Right? Like That's amazing. I'm glad you said that. (laughs) Right? It was just so... I'm just struck by how it gets absorbed by different groups whose explicit values are something else, but their implicit values and behaviors indicate something else. Like you said, it's a feminist space, academia, especially in sociology, but yet these same like microaggressions persist. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I shouldn't say it's, like, really a radical... Like, this is the space where when they were deciding how to conduct a statewide survey of, like, reproductive health, like, in Ohio, they decided not to sample, like, Asian people because there were not enough percentage for it to matter, right? Like, this is that group, right? So it's like, in that way, it's actually maybe, like, my expectation should have been on the ground. But, yeah. But I'm wondering, like, you know, like, in these instances, do you get that sort of, like, I'm just looking out for you. Like, I just don't want you to be hurt. And so that's why you should, you know, not look like that or something, right? Like, that's basically what they... Yeah, it, it's like what you said. It comes from a space of we are already marginalized and I don't want you to feel more pain than you have to. But the pain of actually erasing my identity 
is greater than any pain <laughs> that I would feel if someone, if I didn't look the way that I was. It's just interesting to think about all of that. Yeah, I think that I feel like what you just said is so important. Like, if you, the pain of not being able to ex, like express your your beauty, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like is is uh, it's like a harm that like nobody else will register except you, and so it's like really, I feel like it's really easy for people to dismiss that. What what is coming up for me? and maybe this is coming up for you both also, is this idea of beauty that we are surrounded by is not individual. It's very much collective and generalized where the individual has to lose something or do something extra to fit in rather than the collective saying, we accept you as who you are and what you are as you are. Yeah, I think, and and accepting the, the like, w- like the weird projects that you decide to do for yourself, right? Like that are that maybe don't make sense to people, like because you know, like it's like, yeah, like I don't know, like I I got my nipples pierced, and I was like. Can never show my parents my nipples now, you know, like this, like weird, right? Like it's like, why can't I? So as we're sort of like reflecting on this, this idea of like what makes us feel full and whole and and being accepted for who we are and as we are, what are the political implications of not being that way? Right. What are the political implications that come from these beauty standards that are perpetuated where the individual is not accepted as who they are, even with their pierced nipples? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, yeah, you're right. The political implications are really like they're they can be so important and powerful and like just reshape the standards right like they can make things safe for people um i'm thinking about like disability justice right now because one of the principles of disability justice um is like recognizing wholeness and kind of everybody having inherent value. Like everybody has inherent beauty as well, right? Like we're all human, we're all capable of doing amazing things, but it's it's more difficult for us to do those things if we're tr- being pulled in, in the direction that society says that we need to be pulled in. Like <laughs> our values need to be something different than what they actually are, or our beauty needs to be different than what it actually is and so just like thinking about the the kind of misalignment there and yeah thinking about how that shows up in other kinds of activism and stuff too I guess yeah it's kind of like instead of changing the world you gotta change the world so that there can be disability justice right like instead of like this weird like eugenic kind of approach where they'll be they want to like 
weed out any kind of abnormality so that there's no disability, right? Like sort of like prevention models and stuff. I mean, I feel like that's that works for like this kind of like obesity discourse as well, which is like really connected to beauty standards also. Like it's just kind of an arbitrary BMI cutoff and like, you know, it doesn't really have anything to do with people's health. If they really cared about people's health, there would be like grocery stores with like nutritious food everywhere. And it would be like affordable. So yes, but um, the history of BMI is actually rooted in anti-blackness. So that's, that's funny that you brought that up. Um, So (laughs) yeah, just throwing that out there. There's this one person, their name is Sabrina Strings, and they they are writing or have written a book that's like, you know, like one of those like books that d- does this story of like how the kind of public health paradigm has its roots in the sort of like construction of Black women as like vectors of disease, like in... American and like English society, you know, and I think that it's like they're vilified, like black women particularly are vilified in all of these ways. Their cultural practices of beauty are like absorbed into white culture, you know, and you can see that like the Kardashians and stuff like that, right? Like these sort of like uh, performances of blackness without the blackness that like let people sort of like take what they want and then like kind of like not have to deal with like the reality of like the structural violence and everything but yeah I feel like that's that's important to bring up like so many so many movements too have been taken like black people start these movements and then they get completely whitewashed like we see that with like body positive positivity like the people that are known in the body positivity movement are fat white women um or like the disability justice movement too like the documentary crip cramp crip camp is all white people um and like a lot of the leaders of of disability justice are white people so yeah just so many times and the gun violence stuff it's like that yeah things get taken from black movements and pushed toward whiteness. Yeah, I I remember my mom telling me to like stay out of the sun cuz you'll get darker. You know, like these things that are like just like you're saying like kind of like instinct anti-blackness, like that's like shouldn't shouldn't be dark. They'll think that you're a black kid. You know, like that type of stuff and and then there's you know like just like grow like the place they decided to live was like you know like you can't choose where to live in the United States without considering like the racial makeup of the school because it's basically just like that's what school that's how the quality of schools is like decided and so you know I went to like this high school where I think there were like six or seven like Asian people in like a class of like 600 you know and like maybe like 10 or 15 black people like it was so bad and 
I, I, I regularly was called the N-word, right? Like, just because it's like, I guess because the white people didn't have enough black people to call that. Like, they, you know, it's like this crazy, just like a map, like just like frameworks of anti-blackness, like everywhere you go. Um, and it's like, I think I'm so grateful that I, in sociology and, you know, when I was working at the health department and stuff, I like was able to like break that down, you know? And I, and I worry that there are so many people that don't get opportunities like that, right? Like they just continue living in the segregated white space. And then, you know, like you end up with like, you know, the Bobby Jindals out here, like who are like racist, <laughs> like Republican governors, right? Yeah. Like, and, you know, um, being like, you know, that the, pre- representing themselves as the diversity, right? Like that mm. a diverse, a racially yeah. diverse group of people support these like regressive, racist, sexist policies. Um, even though it's like really actually just with the white people though, right? <laughs> like that's yeah. actually what's happening. Yeah, and then they're, then they're aligning with the oppressors and not really having their politics serve solidarity in a true sense, right? Um, Because then they oppress also (laughs) through their behaviors. And I've been thinking a lot about, like, in this, like, hearing you all speak, um, that perhaps one of the reasons why it's so difficult for my parents and people in my community, including myself, to exist in solidarity with the Black community, with the Latinx community, with Indigenous nations, is because we don't see the beauty in them. (laughs) Or or there's like the jealousy. Yeah. You know, like, I think that there's a deep-seated jealousy that, like, that Black communities exist and have survived and are thriving, right? Like, there is that piece. I find that with my, in my family, but sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to, like, throw that in there as well. No, that's, I did not consider that um, at all. I mean, I don't have any, like, data to support, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like, it's just, like, this feeling of, like, I think that's what's happening, you know? Because it's, like, when there's, like, Black success, like, when Obama was elected, you, like, I started hearing this kind of, like, pushback, like, oh, he was just elected because he was Black. In our last episode, we talked about the challenges of transformational solidarity between the Black and the AAPI community, right? And we talked about this inherent sense, an inherent characteristic of white supremacy is competition, right? Competition that then gets passed down to communities that exist in this system, um, even if they are people of color. And you see other communities who are also oppressed and also are struggling with whiteness and white supremacy as 
competition. I think that jealousy is a product of that inherent competition that white supremacy uh, perpetuates um, in people of color, right? That there's only this table that's this big and Mm -hmm. you must fight over the scraps, let alone the place at it. (laughs) One thing that I feel like I have experienced um, a lot of recent immigrants um, really struggle with that jealousy too because because they've kind of just come here and so they've lost they've lost contact with like or they've lost some kind of contact or some kind of closeness with their family with their culture with their country um, and so I feel like they I feel like it's very common for them to like cling on to whatever whatever they can cling on to from from their like life before they come here um and I definitely noticed that like with my with my mom um it's easy to be jealous of like black communities or indigenous communities that even though they're still struggling even though they're still um being oppressed they have they have history here and they have their family here and they have their culture here right um so i think i feel like that jealousy comes in a couple of different ways so then the question in this conversation becomes like what do we do differently in our understanding of beauty, in our understanding of what is acceptable, what is not, to be inclusive and not divisive in the service of solidarity. I mean, I am thinking, it's hard for me to think about there being like a program that can like work. Cause like if you, can work, right? Like, in every case. Because, like, if you think about solidarity, like, it's very, like, context, like, you you need solidarity in specific contexts. Because, like, if if it's just a diffuse, like, I stand in solidarity, in some ways it's, like, impossible, right? Because, like, how could you stand in solidarity with everything? And, like, to some degree it's like should we all be standing in solidarity like at the same like going for the same goal like what would that even be right like how could it be the same with everybody's interests represented and everything like I mean I I don't really I'm not saying that's not possible I guess I'm just like kind of thinking about like what can we do and I feel like it's like thinking about the, like, what is going on in this context that's, like, where we can locate the things that we've been talking about, right? Like, that's, like, we can locate, like, here's, like, here's the problem with, like, the sort of, like, way that whiteness is being valued in this organization. Even though there's diversity, it's, like, the people of color who have the most proximity to whiteness are the ones who are represented here. 
like being able to have that conversation that's like, oh, you're, you have like an aesthetic that favors whiteness, even though you're including people of color, right? Like the, the nuanced conversation like that, I feel like being able to have that would be important and valuable. I feel like it's not, I feel like it's not there now being able to talk about things like that. So what you're saying is like, because we can't pinpoint, because so much around this topic seems very like intangible, we don't have like the circumstances necessary to even just begin thinking about what we can change. I think that we we could, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be. I think I'm kind of like, you know, you said at the beginning that you believe that things are like, that we can get there, you know, that things are going to get better. And I'll be re- like, I, I'm like, maybe it's just because I'm depressed because of the pandemic, but it's been really hard for me to get there, you know, like, yeah. and so I think I've kind of been like, you know, if we, because the thing that I fear is that we just constantly are like engaged with this, like, let's diversify the standard for beauty. Like, let's mm. just keep, like, adding into it. Yeah. And, like, that's going to change something. And I'm like, is it, though? Like, if we just mm. have, like, a lot of representations, but, like... And so people, like, it's like, yeah, that might do something, right? Like, you might feel like you could see yourself in the mainstream culture, but it doesn't change the fact that, like, cultural production is dominated by like a group of white men who like Mm. run all the media companies which are like there's like four you know like that's actually the problem yeah um so yeah i think that's what i'm trying to get at is like i hear what you're saying i hear what you're saying like how do we look at this apparatus this like this cultural apparatus rather than like the symptoms of it yeah i mean one like this is why i think reproduction is like really it always provides like really interesting examples but like the like the idea of like intersex like fixing intersex through like surgeries on infants who have just been born Right? Like, that is, like, an aesthetic thing that's happening regularly at children's hospitals all over this country. Right? That's, like, you're literally creating this problem by, like, just doing these surgeries, like, to fix a problem that doesn't even exist. That's the type of, like, intervention. Like, to stop something like that from happening or get, like, a whole bunch of people like committed to that feels like it would be I don't know somehow like a different different than just like inclusion into the space or something I wanted to sort of conclude our conversation today by handing you a lop the metaphorical mic to share what you want the world to know about what you think is beautiful. So we're gonna invite you to like fill in the blank. Dear world, I want you to know. 
your world, I want you to know that beauty is in the eye of the property holder. So anxiety is not your friend and you have permission to pronounce gender, gender with a hard G. Thank you for tuning in to our latest episode. When we recorded this episode, it was a few weeks before the white supremacist attack and massacre in Atlanta that took the lives of eight people, six of whom were Asian, mostly women. Anti-Asian violence has been on the rise since the beginning of the pandemic. We are grieving the lives lost in the community and navigating our anger about the lack of action taken taken against these heinous trends in the last year. OPAL has been organizing communities in Ohio to pressure our policymakers to address these incidents. We encourage our listeners to take care of themselves and their communities in the meantime. And as we sign off, we invite you to please get in touch with us via email or social media. If you know someone or you yourself have a story to share and would like to appear on Dear World, let us know. You can reach us at dearworld at opal.org or at Team Opal on Facebook and Instagram.